I want us to begin today in a a new series on courageous leadership. We need to have a resurgence of leaders on every level. Uh, All around our world, there are second-rate actors and wannabe dictators and posturing politicians, but I don't know that we would say that our nation is blessed with great leaders. I don't know that I would say our churches are blessed with great leaders because great leaders have to be courageous. They cannot be fearful. They cannot lean with the winds of public opinion. They cannot decide what the pulse of the people is before they make a decision. Right is right if everybody's against it. And wrong is wrong if everybody's for it. And uh, I, I said to our pastor's prayer partners earlier this morning that I think that on a many tombstones, it could be written these words, I almost said something. When I should have said something, when I should have stopped a conversation, when I should have said, that's not right, that's not true, that's wrong, that's not of God, I almost said something. If I've heard that line one time, I've heard it a million. I almost said something. We're in a crisis of leadership, and everybody wants to conform, and nobody wants to be different. I I remember I got joked at and made fun of when I was slow to change to the iPhone because I had a BlackBerry. And I had friends say, oh, man, you're so old school. Like, everybody's got to have the same thing. How do I know I'm distinct and different? I'm like everybody else. That's the problem with our world today. Nobody stands out. Nobody speaks up. Nobody makes hard decisions. And when they do make hard decisions, they're ostracized or criticized. We need to learn that God has called us to be leaders in our lives. You may not have a title of leadership, but you're called to be a leader in your home, in your school, on your job. You're to lead out as a witness of Jesus Christ of what it means to stand strong and to stand firm and to stand out for what you believe. William Sangster said, the church is painfully in need of leaders. By the way, there's no such thing as a self-made spiritual leader. There's no such thing as a self-made spiritual leader. And what we're going to do in this series is we're going to look at some scripture passages all about the Apostle Paul and how he rose to the occasion and rose to the moment to be a leader when the church was in its early days. And I believe that what we can learn from Paul, we can apply to all of life. So let's define the problem. Problem number one is we prefer the perks of leadership, but we don't want to pay the price of it. We like the perks of leadership, but we don't want to pay the price of it. There's a crisis of leadership in America, and I've already stated that. I don't have to say a lot about it in business, in politics, in church, in our community, in our state, in our nation. When people are always asking the question, is this the best we got? We're in a leadership crisis. 
When picking a candidate is closing your eyes and choosing between the lesser of two depravities. We need leadership. When a church can't find people willing to serve and teach, we need leadership. The evidences of a leadership crisis are all around us. Scandals in politics, ethical questions about people in leadership, corruption in corporations. Uh, every now and then I'll get in a conversation with a business leader and I'll say, uh, uh, tell me what you're dealing with. And I'll typically get one of these three answers. Number one, we can't find people who want to work. We can't find people who want to work. I mean, is it just me? Or when you go somewhere and you're giving somebody money, which is in some way paying their salary, shouldn't they be nice to you and want to help you? And you got people saying, well, I just can't find a job. Listen, you work hard, you'll find a job, and somebody will try to hire you away. Because you're an endangered species. We just can't find people who want to work hard. I mean, they're standing out in the parking lot waiting until 35 seconds before the time clock has to be punched. You want to know how to get ahead? Be early and stay late. That's how you get ahead. Second thing, it's hard to find people who can think for themselves. It's just hard to find people who can think for themselves or make a decision. Third one, they come to the interview dressed like they just got out of bed. They come to the interview dressed like they just got out of bed. Any of you ever had that experience? I mean, it's like they show up and go, holy cow, you want me to pay you? Is that because you need clothes? <laughs> Here's what courageous leadership requires. It requires a courageous goal. I mean, if you've got a low goal anybody can hit, you're not a leader. It requires a courageous goal. For the church, that is, our goal is to do whatever it takes that God might be glorified. Secondly, it requires a courageous strategy. You have to have a strategy, a plan, an operation about how you're going to get from A to B. For the church, that's the Great Commission. It's the greatest strategy to change the world in the world. Nobody has a better strategy than Jesus. And he took a bunch of nobodies and made them leaders. <clears throat> Thirdly, it takes courageous commitment. Courageous commitment. That we work together, that we walk together, we pray together, we serve together for the kingdom of God. That there's a commitment, not I'll do this for a while until I decide to do something else. You study the great corporations of America and you study the great churches that God is blessing and they all have a courageous goal, a courageous strategy, and a courageous commitment. They're not afraid to fail. They're not afraid to try. They're not afraid to trust. They step out and they move. So then, let's determine the person. Let's determine the person. Jesus chose his disciples. The, the church in Acts chapter 6 told the first, chose the first deacons. 1 Timothy chapter 3 and verse 1 says, To aspire to leadership is an honorable ambition. But the first century church was different. When someone aspired to leadership in the first century church, they were aspiring to be on the front lines of persecution and suffering. They were not aspiring to get perks or benefits. 
Because the bishops, the elders, the overseers, and the deacons, when the opposition wanted to destroy a church, the first thing they did is they went after the leadership. And so Paul was constantly persecuted and dogged. Why? Because the Judaizers and the Gnostics knew if we can get to Paul, we can destroy the church. They went after the leaders of the church. So when, when Paul says it's an honorable thing to Timothy, who is a little timid, it's an honorable thing to have a leadership ambition. What he's saying is it's an honorable thing to have the guts to stand up for what's right, no matter what it costs you. It's the honorable thing to do right and to think right. It was risky business at that time. It still is in most of the world. But one of the consistent characteristics in the New Testament of leadership is they were filled with the Holy Spirit. Jesus said that he wanted his people to be with him. And we are to be filled with the Holy Spirit. Paul talks about that in Ephesians 5. The church was to look for leaders filled with the Spirit. Acts chapter 6. Now this has always been fascinating to me. Acts chapter 6 that he says, find men of good reputation, full of the Spirit and full of wisdom. Now you would think being full of the Spirit would be enough. But I've met people who say, well I'm walking in the Spirit but they don't have a good reputation. They don't pay their bills. They're not honorable. They don't do the right thing. They, they would be questioned on their integrity. So it's not just being full of the Spirit, because you can come to church and pretend to be full of the Spirit. It's not just being full of the Spirit. It's of a good reputation and wisdom. Wisdom. Our, our vision planning team, or a group of laymen, and all of them have served as deacon chairman in this church in the 28 years, almost 28 years that I've been here. And when I sit down with them, one thing I know is I'm going to get wisdom. Their collective experiences, their life experiences, their church experience, their understanding the DNA of the way this church operates, I'm going to get collective wisdom from them that will help me in the decisions when we're making big decisions about things that impact all of us. I don't go out there on my own. I ask for wisdom. There's wisdom, Proverbs says, in many counselors. Now you go start asking everybody what they think and you're going to be confused. But there ought to be people that give you wisdom. And, and the writer of Acts, Luke says, you find men good of, of good reputation, full of the Spirit and of wisdom. So there's two truths. Spiritual ends can only be achieved by spiritual men who use spiritual methods. Spiritual ends. If we have a spiritual goal, it can only be achieved by spiritual men who use spiritual methods. And by that I mean it's a prayed over decision. It's godly people who are doing the right thing. And, and you'll see a quote at the end of your notes that I'll just refer to now. That part of what has to happen is the spiritual minded men and women have to take that spiritual mindedness and take it into the world, into the corporate world, into the home, into politics, into business and permeate society with what spiritually minded people think like. How they think, how they operate, how they work. Secondly, the person who thinks they deserve a position is disqualified. 
Acts 6 says that you are to choose from among you. There was no election. Choose from among you. You go find these people. I'm sure there was somebody that says, you know, I ought to be a deacon. But they were to prayerfully choose men who were spiritual men with spiritual methods and spiritual ends to accomplish dealing with the problems in the early church. You see, to think you deserve a position automatically disqualifies you for it. To think that I'm it, or to think that I have to have a title, automatically disqualifies me from having that title because I've exalted myself. The, the Latin word ambition means to canvas for promotion or to politic for power, to seek approval. Jesus' answer to ambition was, if you want to be great, be a servant. Amen. If you want to be great, be a servant. Uh, last Sunday night, we had Voices Mobile here, and, and uh, it was their last concert for many of them who were seniors. And, and one of the girls, they had a prayer time on Sunday afternoon, and one of the girls went around and washed the feet of every other member of the group. have a picture of her washing Roger Breland's feet. You know why she's a leader? Because she's a servant. You see, if we're too good to serve, we're too good to be used. Count Zinzendorf, the leader of the Moravian Missionary Movement, made this statement, I have one passion. It is he and he alone. Count Zinzendorf started a movement, the Moravian Missionary Movement, which was also a prayer movement that lasted over 100 years. One out of every 92 people in the Moravian church surrendered to foreign missions because of the power of the influence of that one man. When Jesus started calling leaders, he went outside the religious structure he got a bunch of renegades and fishermen and tax collectors, people that the society and the system would have written off. But he saw something in them. And then after Pentecost, he set his mind and his heart on one guy. And in Acts chapter 9, he met him on the road to Damascus. And Paul, who was a great leader in his own right, just leading in the wrong direction, became the great leader of the first century church. Today, we depend way too much on worldly wisdom and not on godly wisdom. And we look for better methods. God's looking for better men and women. Proverbs 16, 25, there is a way that seems right to man, but the end is death. Now, I want you to think about Paul here. Paul, Paul is a missionary He's an evangelist, he's a church planter, he's a businessman, he's an authority on the law, he, he is a, he's got a heritage to beat the band, and he rocks the world. Now he did this before cell phones, text message, Instagram, Snapchat, Facebook, and any other platform or social media you want to go. He did not have any frequent flyer miles. He didn't buy one, get one free ticket on a cruise ship. He walked or took a boat 
and literally changed the whole known world. One man courageously taking the gospel to do what nobody else apparently was willing to do at the level he was willing to do it. And he impacted people and places and cities. In fact, it says that the gospel even made it to the household of Caesar. Here's a man who made a difference. He got the attention of the most powerful empire on the planet. Based on his testimony in Philippians 3 and Acts 22, he had prepared all his life for a position he never acquired. Now you need to think about that for a minute. Paul prepared all his life for a position he never acquired because somewhere in my sanctified imagination, I believe that when Paul lists all of his credentials, what Paul was saying was, I am totally qualified to one day become the high priest of Israel. I'm totally qualified to lead the Sanhedrin. I'm, I am a Pharisee of Pharisees. I am a leader of leaders. I've been trained in the best schools. I've got it all. I know it all. I'm educated. I'm brilliant. I'm single-minded. I'm a man of principle. I'm a Hebrew of Hebrews. And he had it all. When you study the life of Paul, here's a man that is the most overqualified leader in the history of the world. He was a Jew with Roman citizenship. He lived in a Greek city. He understood the Jewish and the Greek and Roman culture. He was literally a citizen of the world, and yet to be used by God, he had to be broken. All that resume, I mean, he couldn't wait to email his resume to somebody. But all that resume, he had to be broken of it and become nothing so that God could use him. His courage, he discovered, was not by what he knew or who he knew. His courage was in, put in him by the power of the Holy Spirit. He, was, he had set out to crush the opposition, to crush Christianity, which he thought was blasphemy. And he became its biggest proponent. He had a career change on the Damascus Road. You see, it's not enough to be passionate about something. You've got to be passionate about that which makes an eternal difference. Anybody can be passionate, but are you passionate about things that are going to matter five seconds after you're gone? Here's what I love. God did not squelch his passion. He just baptized it. God didn't say, well, Paul... You know, none of that's any good now. All that training, all that you know. No, he knew how to deal with the Judaizers. He knew how to deal with the Gnostics. He knew how to deal with government. He knew how to deal with the politics of the way people play politics. He knew all of that, but he was baptized and filled with the Holy Spirit of Christ. And that changed him and the way he worked. And he wept over people that opposed him. Just read his story. So let's declare the principles. First of all. What defines courageous leadership? Number one, integrity. Integrity. Without integrity, we're just actors. Integrity. And most of all, integrity is seen in the small things. That your yes is yes and your no is no. And you do what you say you're going to do. If you're going to be a courageous leader, the first characteristic of a courageous leader is you have to have integrity. 
And by the way, if you're a part of a team, there is no team chemistry if you're always thinking of yourself first. There's no team chemistry if you're always thinking of yourself first. My friend Hugh Freeze always gives his players a lecture. He said, it's not about you. It's about the guy next to you. You're to make him as successful as he can possibly be. If you're the guard, then you need to make the tackle the most successful tackle he can be on this team. If you're the running back, you need to make the quarterback successful. If you're the quarterback, you need to make the wide receiver successful. You need to make the people on this team besides you great. And if you do, you'll be a great player. Integrity. Secondly, passion. Passion. You got to have passion for what God has called you to do or the platform that God has given you. A great leader has courage to fulfill their vision not from position, but from passion. Positions don't fulfill visions. Passion fulfills a vision. Now, when I was youth minister, back in the dark ages before we had electricity, um, I was youth minister at First Baptist Yukon, Oklahoma, which is a suburb of Oklahoma City. And uh, Ray Sanders, who's one of the members of our Sherwood Pictures Board, Ray Sanders brought this kid to church with him one Wednesday night. And this kid wanted to come see Ray Sanders because Ray could play his guitar behind his head. He could put the guitar behind his head and he could play it behind his head. Now, I only knew about two songs he could do that. He could do I'm a C, I'm a C-H, I'm a C-H-R-S-T-I-N. He could do that. But this guy came with him. And so the first night he brought him, brought him to uh, church on Wednesday night. And I said, hey, uh, uh, see you brought a guy with you. He said, yeah. He said, he, he's, he lives in Mustang, which was right up the road. And I said, well, let's just go to McDonald's and I'll, I'll buy him supper tonight. So we went to McDonald's and that was the first time I met Garth Brooks, who came to watch Ray Sanders play his guitar behind his head. I've told Ray often, if I'd known he was Garth Brooks, <laughs> I'd have bought him two hamburgers. <laughs> Garth Brooks has a song called The River about a man who refuses to sit upon the shoreline and say they're satisfied. The line says, instead, they choose to chance the rapids and dare to dance the tide. One writer said, within just a few generations, this entrepreneurial leader and other sent ones or apostles were said to have turned the world upside down. The flexible organization they established persevered through persecution and hostile attempts from competitors to stamp out their progress. Yet the powerful Roman Empire would crumble even as this venture grew. Integrity, passion, obedience, obedience. Annie Dillard said, a life without sacrifice is an abomination. Obedience. Jesus said, if you want to be my disciple, you take up your cross and you die to yourself and you follow me. See, here's the deal. We want to read books on leadership. You can go in an airport and just find a dozen books on leadership. Somebody's written it. It'll be out of print in a year because it didn't sell. You find all these books on leadership, but... The key in the Bible is you are a disciple first and a leader second. You are a Christ follower 
And then out of the Christ followers, leadership comes. And influence comes. There's sacrifice. Obedience is never the path of least resistance. Paul obeyed in jail, 2 Timothy 1.8. When he was betrayed, 2 Timothy 1.15. When he was suffering, 2 Timothy 1.8. And in that setting, he says to Timothy, join with me in suffering for the gospel. Why was Paul suffering? He was suffering as a direct result of obeying God. Brian Dodd says, Western Christians have tended to adopt a version of Christianity that cuts out the cross. But here's the principle. No crucified life, no life-giving ministry. If you want to be courageous, if you want to have power in the good sense of that word, if you want to be a leader, then live a crucified life. And then your life will be a life-giving ministry to others. Number four, sacrifice. Now let me just ask you to write down by sacrifice 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 9 through 13. 1 Corinthians 4, 9 through 13. And if you took time to read all of it, it would say this. Paul says, I'm a spectacle to the world, a fool for Christ's sake, weak, held in dispute, reviled, slandered, Become like rubbish to the world, the dregs of all things. Now, here's where Paul is different from the 21st century American. He never blamed the Judaizers or the Gnostics or the Roman Empire for his problems. reason we don't have leaders today is because our first default reaction is to play the blame game. It's somebody else's fault. Is that because of them I couldn't get a job? Because of them I couldn't have this position? Because of them I didn't get a raise? Because of this? Because of this? Listen, Paul had people dogging him every step of the way, and he never said, you know, if it wasn't for the Romans, I could get a lot more done. If it wasn't for the Judaizers and the Gnostics, I could plant more churches. No. He was suffering for the gospel. His suffering was coming out of his obedience to Christ to do what Christ had told him to do. He had trouble inside the church. He had trouble outside the church. Let me just give you a thought here. Happiness is not the absence of problems. It's the ability to deal with them. Happiness doesn't come when your problems go away because when you turn the corner, there's another one. Happiness is not the absence of problems, it's the ability to deal with them. Here's Paul. He's dealing with false teachers in Corinth, a church that had all the gifts and talked about how great they were and that they were at the top of the heap of all the people that Paul had ever run into. Nobody thought more of themselves than the Corinthians. And Paul said, you're carnal. They questioned his apostleship. They mocked his work. They belittled his authority. And Paul said, the reason you're, you think the reason I'm suffering is because I'm not following God. And he said just the opposite. I'm suffering because I am following God. And my life and my calling is running counter to this culture. You see, the difference between Paul and the other people that were pretenders, the difference was not style, but substance. What makes you a leader? Not style. I mean, listen, there are people that can sell vinyl siding to people with homes that are brick homes. 
I mean, they, you know, they're just salesmen. I mean, you, you, you buy stuff you don't want because the guy's such a good salesman. It's not style, it's substance. The problem with leadership in the church today is we don't have the courageous leadership to stand up and say it's not about style, it's about substance. Because what's raking in the money on religious television is style. Not substance. You want to kill a religious television program, have substance. Don't tell people what they want to hear. Tell them what they need to hear. And you'll lose it. You'll lose a crowd. But you tell people you get the right flair and the right attitude and the right this and the right that. You see, the church is not about style. That's a preference. The church is about substance. And if we're going to be leaders in the church, it's got to be about substance. And substance comes from being totally committed to and in love with Jesus Christ. So here's Paul. He's suffering on all these levels. Physically, he's got disloyalty, Demas, and diatrophies, and false teachers. But look at what he says in 2 Corinthians chapter 1 and verse 8. We don't want you to be in the dark, friends, about how hard it was when all of this came down on us in Asia province. It was so bad, we didn't think we were going to make it. We felt like we'd been sent to death row, that it was all over for us. As it turned out, it was the best thing that could have happened. Instead of trusting in our own strength or wits to get out of it, we were forced to trust God totally. Not a bad idea, since he's the God who raises the dead. You see, Paul saw sacrifice and suffering as an opportunity to show the sufficiency of Christ in his weak and broken body. He saw Christ could be magnified in him. And the substance of who Christ was could be magnified in them. And the right thing and the hard thing Don't miss this one. The right thing and the hard thing are almost always the same thing. If it's easy, everybody would do it. But if you're going to have courage, if you're going to be courageous in your home, in your business, in your family, in your school, if you're going to have courage, then the right thing and the hard thing are usually the same thing. Paul asked two questions in Acts 22 that we should ask today, and leaders are never afraid to ask questions. Question number one, who are you, Lord? First question, blinded by light, nobody hears or sees what Paul hears and sees on the road to Damascus. He's got orders to go persecute and kill Christians. He's blinded by light. And the first thing he says, who are you, Lord? He says, I'm the one you're persecuting. So the question, first question for anyone to ask in this room is, am I saved? Do I know who the Lord is? Do I know that he is the Savior of the world? He's not a way, he's the way. He's not a path, he's the path. 
He's not a answer among many answers. He's the answer. He's not one of many truths. He's the truth. And the only way to get to heaven is through Jesus Christ. And so if I want to have courage, then the only way I'm going to get courage is to die to myself in what I think and say, who are you, Lord? And he says, I'm the Lord who died for you. And to have the courage to make a public profession of faith in him. To follow him with your heart, to follow him fully, to yield to him, to surrender your life to him, to repent of the fact that you've tried to live life on your own terms. So the first question Paul asks is, who are you, Lord? Do you know who he is today? I'm not asking if you know he's a prophet or a teacher or a good religious leader. Do you know him as your personal Lord and Savior? But the second question he asks is a question for all of us. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to do? You realize that God's got something he wants you to do? I mean, you're not here just to take up air and swallow eight spiders a year, according to statistics. <laughs> you're not here just to get a job and get a paycheck and look at what your Social Security is and figure out when you're going to retire. You're not here just to get a degree. God has a purpose for every life in this room. And it's bigger than your vocation. It's about having the courage to be a leader in a world of cowards. To say, I know whom I believed. And I am persuaded that he is able to keep that which I've committed unto him against that day. In other words, if I can trust God that because I've given him my life, that I'm going to go to heaven when I die, I ought to trust him to have the courage that he's going to watch over me no matter what trials I go through on this earth. What do you want me to do? What do you want me to say? What do you want me to do? Where do you want me to go? How do you want me to live? How do you want me to respond? The courageous leader is not afraid to ask those questions. And so let me ask you a question. There's a problem in a lack of leadership. And all of you are leaders, whether you think you are or not. Because leadership as John Maxwell says, is influence. And if anybody, friend, family, work associate, if anybody stops and listens when you talk, you have influence. The question is, are you using it courageously? Or will your tombstone say one day, I almost said something. Would you stand with me with heads bowed and eyes closed? If you need to trust Christ today as your personal Lord and Savior, if you've never had that moment when you've passed from death to life, when you've acknowledged you're a sinner in need of a Savior, then I know what it's going to take. It's going to take a little courage for you to walk down this aisle in front of all these people. But everybody Jesus called, he called publicly. Jesus said, if you're ashamed of me, I'll be ashamed of you. If you deny me, I'll deny you. But if you profess me, I'll profess you before my Father who is in heaven. So I want to ask you, with heads bowed and eyes closed right now, would you just pray if there's someone in this room today that needs to trust Christ as their personal Lord and Savior, would you just step out from where you are right now, the balcony and the mezzanines, wherever you might be, would you just step out and just come and find one of these men and say, 
I, I need to trust Christ today. I need to give my heart to Jesus today. And maybe you're here today and you need to come forward or you need to do it right where you are. I don't know. But you're a Christian, but if you were honest, I mean, if you were honest, you've been a coward about your faith. You've almost said something. And then a friend or a family member is gone and you almost said something. Or somebody mocked the name of your God and you didn't say anything because you didn't have courage. Or somebody used God's name in vain and you stood there quietly because you didn't want to offend them. You know what courage is? Courage is a prayed up life that's gotten off its knees and gone to battle. That's what courage is. We have courage when we're prayed up, filled up, and we get off our knees and we go to the battle. This world needs courageous leaders. I can tell you there's not a member of ISIS that doesn't prove that for their side. While the church sits silently and sings kumbaya and hopes that coffee will be in Sunday school and nobody will bother me and I'll be able to get my devotional book and everybody will be okay and nobody will hold me accountable. While a handful of militants put this whole world in fear, the church is quiet. I'm more concerned about a lack of courageous leadership in the church than I am in Washington or in the city government or anywhere else. I'm concerned that at a time when the church needs to be its strongest and its most committed, we quietly hope that the world will pass us by and leave us alone. Father, I ask you in Jesus' name to use us. Lord, when we sing this song in just a moment, I pray it won't just be words, but it'll be truth coming out of our mouth. If you can use anything, anyone, Lord, you can use me. Would that be our testimony as we leave this place in a few moments? I pray in the name of Jesus.